Hi, everyone. Matt Robeson, Beyond Politics Podcast. And I wanted to bring you this interview with U.S. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse today for two reasons. One is that we've had a bunch of new subscribers. Thank you. And this is an interview that my co-host, former U.S. Congressman Paul Hodes, and I did with Senator Whitehouse this past summer. And you may not have heard it yet. But for everybody, whether you've been a longtime subscriber or not, this discussion felt really relevant to me in light of some new information we got last week. This is about Jane Roberts, the wife of Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, John Roberts, having major conflicts of interest, bringing in millions of dollars by recruiting lawyers to firms that had business before her husband on the Supreme Court. Now, why does this connect to the Sheldon Whitehouse discussion? Well, first of all, one of the major things we covered was Ginny Thomas, the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, who over the last 15 years has also taken millions of dollars directly from advocacy groups and right-wing institutions with business before her husband, with business before the Supreme Court. And of course, we also know that she was all over the effort to overturn the election. She was emailing a huge listserv of former Thomas clerks who are highly placed throughout the judicial system to try to influence them. She was texting the White House chief of staff and the main conspirators. She was part of, let's just call it what it is, a coup attempt. So she was at the epicenter of all of this. And now you have these questions about Jane Roberts, and you have these connecting themes here of spouses and money and a network of right-wing groups, which is the major focus of our discussion with the senator, how all these right-wing dark money groups connect and work together and pick who gets to be on the court, and how people like Senator Whitehouse, with all of his resources, can barely keep tabs on the billions of dollars that are flowing through them. And that, of course brings me to the final theme, which ties in here, which is something we've been talking about on the show a lot recently, and we're going to keep focusing on, including in an upcoming episode this week that I'm really excited about. Um, so please stay tuned for that. And that's the extent to which Russian oligarch money, Vladimir Putin's money, has infiltrated and corrupted American politics and American politicians, mostly through the Republican Party and the Donald Trump cabal, although not exclusively, just mostly. What we know is probably just the tip of the iceberg, but we know that there was a cesspool of this dark money, these groups, these right-wing billionaires, and Russians. They're all connected, and we know that Russians funneled money through groups like the NRA into Republican campaigns. We know that Russian operatives infiltrated the Republican Party, including Maria Butina. What we don't know is the limits of all of this, how much Russian money. Well, how much Saudi Arabian money, for that matter, what groups did it go through and whose hands did it end up in? And look, if you're thinking, well, some of this sounds speculative or some of this sounds far-fetched, I urge you to check out our episode last week about how well-documented the flow of Russian money into Donald Trump's businesses and to him personally has been over the last five decades and how we've kind of memory hold the whole Russia connection. And now how the George Santos episode, with his major benefactor being the cousin of a sanctioned Russian oligarch, mysteriously, should renew our interest in how much of this is going on under the surface that we don't know about. Yes, because it's dark money, some of it is shrouded, because it's illicit and it's underhanded. So we are forced to speculate some, but there's a lot we do know, and it's bad. So here is that discussion with Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, which I think is just as relevant today as when we first recorded it a few months ago. 
I hope you enjoy it. And please do us a favor. Keep leaving us ratings and reviews wherever you get your podcasts, because that really does help us out. Welcome to Beyond Politics. Broadcast on Podcast. I'm Matt Robeson, and I want to thank all the new subscribers we're seeing on the show. We really appreciate it. We hope you'll subscribe if you haven't yet. Also want to thank my co-host, former U.S. Congressman Paul Hodes. Paul, we've got a fantastic guest today. Well, I'm really pleased uh, to welcome a great friend of mine, a great friend of the show, and a great friend of the American people, Rhode Island Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, who is leading the charge against dark money in the United States Senate. Senator, welcome to Beyond Politics. Thank you, Paul. Wonderful to be with you and Matt. So um, you were recently on MSNBC. You appeared with uh, Joy Reid on The Readout and talked about the fact that the Federalist Society and their operative Leonard Leo sits at the center of a right-wing network of dark money and influence aimed at taking control of the judiciary and the Supreme Court. Uh, you shared an image on the show that we will provide in the show notes to listeners. Could you just explain to our listeners what's going on with this right-wing effort and why is it so important uh, that it be understood? What's going on with this right-wing effort is that they have engaged in a multi-decade plan to capture the Supreme Court, much in the way that if you go back and read the history of administrative agencies, you will find 19th century railroad commissions that were essentially taken over by the railroad so that the commission was doing whatever the railroad wanted. You'll remember that the Minerals Management Service disgraced itself pretty thoroughly in the lead up to the uh, massive fire in the Gulf where the rig, the uh, Deepwater Horizon exploded. Right. So that's what capture is all about. And sure enough, they've targeted it at the Supreme Court. And they have a very robust group of front groups that they operate through. Center for Media and Democracy has just calculated that this whole enterprise has cost what they can identify $580 million spent. So this is a big deal. You don't spend $580 million just to get popcorn. You are really shooting for big game. And then when you look at what's become of the court and how their rulings are, you can see that they've actually succeeded. And the devices that they've used have been the Federalist Society and the Digital Crisis Network and a whole array of phony front groups that they send in as you and I know as amicus curiae, friends of the court who get to right. file a brief with the court. So what that image did was it laid out one element of that archipelago of phony networking that supports the court capture operation. I'm glad you talked about that tie-in between the money and, and the capture of the court and the effort to place people on the court. One connection, not noted on your chart, but that is very much in the news, is the connection to Ginny Thomas, the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Now, the legal scholar and a recent guest on this show, Kimberly Whaley, has argued persuasively that the January 6th nexus of her text messages and how she was trying to drive forward what eventually became the insurrection, the attempt to overturn the peaceful transfer of power in the U.S., on its own merits impeaching Justice Thomas because he violated existing U.S. code, which I won't cite to you because you're a former prosecutor yourself and a U.S. senator. 
But I wanted to ask about the broader pattern of behavior that ties in to what's on the chart, the larger effort to influence the court and the ways that Ginny Thomas is tied into that. Because for example, she founded the group Groundswell, which coordinates conservative advocacy on Supreme Court issues. She draws revenue from her own lobbying clients who file those amicus briefs that you just alluded to on issues before the Supreme Court. And she works closely. She is a multi-decade friend, close friend of Leonard Leo's. So given all of these massive tie-ins and conflicts, have you or your fellow members of the Judiciary Committee in the US Senate considered an investigation into Ginny Thomas and Clarence Thomas's activities? Or have you talked about an outright impeachment of Justice Thomas? Well, impeachment is a House decision, not a Senate decision. And unfortunately, the way the Senate is presently constituted at 50-50, we can't do investigations without Republican support, and there's not going to be any. So what we can do is hold hearings, and what we I have been doing is pressing on the ethics issues surrounding the Supreme Court, one of which, <laughs> there are several, one of which is its recusal problem. Hmm. Its recusal problem is many-fold. It's partly that they're not under a code of ethics. So if somebody decides not to recuse, it's just plain tough bounce. They don't even have to make an explanation to anybody. And they've got, as you saw with the Jenny Thomas episode and perhaps with other cases coming, it will be even clearer. They seem to ignore what would seem to be pretty flagrant conflicts of interest. The, uh, the other flamboyant recusal problem was in what's called AFPF versus Bonta. AFPF, you will know, is Americans for Prosperity foundation. Americans for Prosperity being the Koch brothers' main political battleship in the dark money armada that they run. So they've got their main battleship, and all of these groups pair up. The standard process here is you pair up a 501c3 and a 501c4, and they're little twins, just like the two twinned ones in the diagram that you've got. So this is AFPF and AFPF Foundation. AFPF spent millions of dollars sorry, AFP, <laughs> the confusion. AFP spent millions of dollars on the confirmations of Barrett, Kavanaugh, and Gorsuch and on stopping Garland. There's Supreme Court precedent that says when people spend big money to help judges get on the court, that's a potential due process issue. And AFPF and AFP are indistinguishable from each other. Same offices, overlapping boards, directors, CEO, staff, as I've said, you could pierce the corporate veil between those two organizations with a banana. <laughs> and yet, when AFPF is the, is the petitioner in the case, the named party, not only do they not recuse after its twin spent all this money getting them on the court, they don't even deign to answer correspondence and brief that say they should be recusing. They just blow it off. And there's no accountability for that. There's no one to go to. There's no panel. They're the only judges in the entire federal system who have no accountability in this way. In any other court, you could go to an ethics panel. Can I Let's take a break. We'll be right back. Can I just ask a quick follow-up on that, Paul, because I know you want to sure, ask sure. more about the court yeah. itself. But I know I'm going to sound like the recently deceased Donald Rumsfeld in this, known knowns, known unknowns. But Senator Whitehouse, you are one of the leading, if not the leading authorities in the US Senate on, on this 
dark money cloud that sits over America. How much are you, how, how worried are you about what we don't know? There are, are so many tantalizing and frightening threads out there. There was the revelation a couple of years back that Russian money was sloshing in through the NRA to Republican campaigns. There's all kinds of connections. If, if you know what you know about AFP and AFPF, are you worried that that's just the tip of the iceberg and what we don't know about all of these crazy connections? Yes, it totally is the tip of the iceberg. And there are innumerable front groups. They've been numbered in uh, around 100, let's say. And if you look at, think of a piano and all the individual piano keys, think of each one of these phony front groups as a piano key. And think of who's playing that piano Mm -hmm. and how they can play chords and play sequences. And the whole thing is scripted by somebody else. And because it's all dark money, you don't know who is playing the piano. And we have to live with the results of the piano. It's enormous amounts of slime and lying because when you're a phony front group, you have no accountability to anybody. I mean, if you're Exxon and you lie and smear about somebody, somebody actually might think, you know, Exxon, they're, they're liars and they're smearers. That's not good. But if they're operating through a front group that they can dispose of like toilet paper, they can lie and smear to their heart's content and the accountability goes away with the toilet paper. So it's a really, really bad problem. And as you have pointed out, the domestic special interest protecting this system that enables them to have political control in Washington requires them also to leave vulnerabilities to foreign influence, right? If it's a secret pathway of influence and money, it's just as secret for Marathon Petroleum and for Vladimir Putin or for the Grand Ayatollah or whoever wants to make mischief. And the fact that Americans, Americans are protecting these avenues of influence in order to keep their own grip on power, even though it's obvious that they can be and have been used by foreign influencers just shows how morally decrepit they are. Well, let's, speaking of morally decrepit, let's turn to the Supreme Court. We now have a situation where arguably the United States Supreme Court has veered out of control with this radical right-wing activist majority putting in place an extreme view of the law and the Constitution that few Americans support and basically is a tortured legal opinion if you're reading through the Alito opinion, which I've done. The court has used the shadow docket to de facto decide cases. There's great concern and and I think real (laughs) valid concern that the draft opinion may open up a Pandora's box of undoing fundamental rights and freedoms that this opinion, and that's it's been argued by folks like Mary Ziegler, who's a professor of constitutional law at Harvard Law School, that this will simply invite conservatives back for the next round of attacks on our our freedoms and and rights that we have come to accept as ours what what can democrats in the senate do while we have the majority even the first thing that we have to do and it's the reason i've been writing all these captured courts reports and giving my scheme speeches and doing everything i can to get the word out is we have to help the american people understand what is going on here we can't just idly like sleeping sentries, let the bad guys creep up and seize and capture this court 
and not even call them out about it. So that's the first key thing we have to do. And your point is exactly right. The Alito opinion nominally targets abortion, but what really targets is the right to privacy. And they say abortion is not mentioned in the Constitution. Well, by the exact same analysis, privacy is not mentioned in the Constitution. And the right to abortion is a subset of that right to privacy that has been put in peril by Alito's draft decision. Other things that are also part of that right to privacy are the right to, for instance, contraception and the right to choose who you want to marry. So while this was a wild decision just on the abortion issue alone, the fact that the targeting was at the overarching privacy right also imperils, just as a matter of logical analysis, imperils all the other privacy rights that Americans enjoy because the Supreme Court just set a torpedo straight at our right of privacy. And then that's just talking about privacy. When, you, when they really want to get rolling, wait till you see what they do to what they like to call the administrative state, the regulatory agencies that protect us and are smart and strong and persistent enough to go up against big industry and know what the tricks are and try to keep them in fair behavior. And by the way, they're on their way to making a constitutional right to dark money so that we can never get this filthy dark money operation out of our politics. So that we have, this is the abortion decision as foul and dangerous as it was, is a preview of coming attractions and a warning that should ring across a whole variety of topic areas, even beyond the right to privacy. Matt, let me just quickly follow up. In, in light of all of that, is there discussion going on about the possibility of a more fundamental reform uh, of the court? I mean, in the past, yes. there have been discussions about uh, expanding the number of justices. And then we're running, we always run into the issue of, well, what do we do about a filibuster, et cetera? Yep. Yep. There should be those discussions. There are those discussions. I think that one thing that's important to remember, I'm a Democrat. Paul, you were a Democratic congressman. Matt was a, I think, Matt, were you as chief of staff? I was. So you are, so we all come out of Democratic politics. And one of the things I think we have to recognize is that Democrats can really suck at product rollout. <laughs> and we tend to get way ahead of our skis and come up with some genius idea that we fall in love with before we've brought the American people along to understand why that reform, why that resolution is needed. And they're already accusing us of being the pack the court party. And I, to me, the important the first thing we like, I'm going into court, right? I'm a lawyer, I'm going into court. I'm gonna ask the judge for extraordinary relief. Before I can ask that judge for extraordinary relief and have him not laugh me out of the courtroom, I gotta show why I'm entitled to it. I gotta show what my problem is and who did it and how this order will solve it. And that grunt work up front of identifying the problem and communicating it to the American people is the first order of business, and then they'll understand, and then a lot of these other ideas will make a lot of sense to them. But if we get way ahead of ourselves, I'm about as green as you get, and yet we got force-fed the Green New Deal. Mitch McConnell called it up as a vote because we got way ahead of our skis, and they were able to make fun of it, turn it around, call it anti-hamburger, and so you have to work in a deliberate way and bring the American public along with you because ultimately they're the judge of all of this. So I don't want to back away from any court reforms, but I don't want to be leaping out there before we've done our basic homework 
of bringing people along and explaining to them what the rot is at the Supreme Court and why it's necessary to fix it. Well, that's exactly why you're here, why we thought it was so important to have you here on this show to do the grunt work. And Paul and I are the grunts. And as part of making that case, and- I'm a front. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I, it is so important. It's so complex. And the, the summary chart that you put up on the readout does a great job of snapshotting it, but there are so many connections. You mentioned a moment ago, the, the work at the federal agencies. And one of the tie points to everything we're talking about here, dark money, the Supreme Court, is also the nomination process and the work of those federal agencies. You know better than anyone that with all the gridlock in Congress, 95% of policy is getting made in the executive branch, in the agencies. And so it's part of in my view, the right-wing agenda to stymie all of that work as much as possible. And we have, let's take a break. We'll be right back. And so, and so just to connect over to this, the, the dark money piece of it and the, the court skewing piece of it, there's also this angle that Jane Mayer wrote about in The New Yorker just uh, last week. And she profiled the American Accountability Foundation, which is a dark money group, and it aims to prevent the approval of all Biden administration nominees, particularly women and people of color, because we know that's their jam. And what they do is they try to slime them all, just like they slimed Katanji Brown-Jackson. So first of all, I, you have a vantage point on all of these nominations and all of these hearings. Most Americans aren't paying attention to that. Are you seeing the effects of all of these sliming efforts show up in these hearings to confirm Biden nominees? And second of all, is there anything that, that we can do in the Senate to try to clean this up and get the sleaze merchants out of it? Yeah, we definitely are seeing that. We see that all the time. We saw Department of Justice nominees like Vanita Gupta, who is who was hired to run the Civil Rights Division, which does voting rights. So you can imagine why that gets the far right anti-voting crowd all excited. They ran dark money funded television ads against her. She's about three rungs down in the Department of Justice and she doesn't run for office. So when they're running dark money advertisements against people that far down, that's a clue in and of itself. And they've run all sorts of dark money nonsense around Kapanji Brown-Jackson. If you recall in that hearing, the two big things were she's really soft on porn possession cases, and therefore you can attribute a love for child porn people to her. And second, you really have to understand her judicial philosophy. We need to like really understand her judicial philosophy. And you can trace both of those arguments back to memos by dark money front groups that told the Republican senators, these are the issues that you need to raise and here's how you need to frame it. So what you thought was like live and spontaneous performance perhaps by some of the senators, no. They're speaking off a script provided by these dark money groups that are aligned with the American Accountability Group, with the groups behind the anti-Venita Gupta ads. And while they don't have power, they're doing their best to smear everybody. And in the case of, of this one, it's supposed to be a nonpartisan organization. It's supposed to be doing like public interest work. So the fact that the IRS doesn't do any legitimate investigation or homework to check into this nonsense, Remember how badly they got burned in the Obama years? The whole right wing lit up. 
said that this was the IRS being against conservatives. Later on, the IG investigated, found that was complete pucky, just nonsense. But they had spun it up so much that, and they were trying to get the IRS commissioner impeached, and they tried to have the junior IRS official prosecuted by the Department of Justice. So they really, 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 really raised hell to protect mischief in these 501c front groups. And the IRS, as a result, is still cowed from touching it. It's radioactive to them, so they don't do their investigative work. That's one thing you could do. You could get the IRS to grow a set and do its job. Man, I came up for Senate confirmation in 2012 to the National Council on the Arts. I'm glad I'm not coming up now. They'd probably come after me. But yeah. turn into Jamie Raskin because she has the she had the uh, indecency to take climate change seriously. So the whole that was what Jane was writing about in that case. Right. Right. So let's just turn uh, our attention to uh, another important right wing effort to skew, which is to skew American elections. The aims uh, in going after judiciary and elections seems to be the same. Put people in power, grab majorities that are unrepresentative. The midterms are coming. Where do we stand in the efforts of Congress to protect our elections? Is there any chance of getting something meaningfully done before the midterms? I don't see it because of the Republican filibuster and a, a very, very few Democrats who aren't willing to find a way around the filibuster. To be clear, you don't have to end the filibuster. You just have to make a pathway around it, which can be an arduous pathway, but you should st it shouldn't be a veto by Mitch McConnell. That's not what a minority gets in a democracy. Stop with that. We have to live with that right now as a political fact. Right. Yeah. And just to, to, to make clear to our listeners, the filibuster is a rule, not a law. Yeah. And if, you, if people look at that diagram that looks a little bit like an insect with a head and a body, it's responsive to your question in that one of the legs on the body is called the Judicial Crisis Network. It's the leg that paid for all of the ads to attack Garland and then push Gorsuch, the very troubled Brett Kavanaugh, and breaking the Garland rule Barrett all onto the court. And they were getting checks, $15 million checks, $17 million checks, big, big checks from big, big donors. And we don't know who they are. Mm. And the same entity operating under a different fictitious name than Judicial Crisis Network is the Honest Elections Project. Right. The Honest Elections Project takes the same dark money, run out of the same operation, and they go back into those courtrooms of the judges that they help get on the court, and they argue for voter suppression stuff. They bring voter suppression cases and litigation and challenges and send threatening letters to elections bodies and all of that. And if you look, you'll see that there's actual there's an actual entity that would be like the body of the bug. There's a pair, the 501c3, 501c4. Yep. All of those other legs are what are called fictitious names. They don't even actually exist. They're not even real. They're just that those center groups operating under authorized fictitious names. Right. So the Judicial Crisis Network actually is the Honest Elections Project, the court packing enterprise uh, leg of that actually is the same entity as the voter suppression leg. 
And we act as if it's all different, as if this is not like, thank God we're not running America's intelligence community, because if, <laughs> if we were this easy to fool in the tricky intelligence world, we'd be having our pants pulled down every day. Senator, I know you've got to get out of here. You've got a lot of important work to do. Let's get you out of here on this. You made a, a very cogent argument a moment ago that the first step in fixing any of this is getting the American people to understand it better. So if there was one thing that you could leave our listeners with that you wish the American people understood better about this nexus of dark money, right-wing activists, the power grab in the judiciary and in Congress, what would it be? What do you want people to take away and remember out of this? That the dark money enterprise that has packed the court and that has stymied us on climate change and that has paid for an enormous amount of Mitch McConnell's political operation and that is attacking us right now on voter suppression and smearing nominees is one enterprise. It is one common enterprise. It is the same piano, different piano keys. And until we explain to the American public that this is one piano being played by powerful billionaire special interests, and we're all being foozled by it, we're never going to be able to make the case effectively. And the only other point I'd add is that we've got a chance to vote to get rid of a lot of this stuff when we bring up the Disclose Act later this year. And that would get rid of all dark money over $10,000. So for all your listeners who are accustomed to spending more than $10,000 in uh, a political race and a political season. Yep, we're going to cramp your style a little bit and make you tell everybody who you are. But I think that's fair play to keep the billionaires from controlling our politics and to let American citizens know what's going on around them. Thanks so much for joining us. Great to be with you, Paul. Great to be with you, Matt. Thank you. Thanks, Senator. Thanks, Senator.